I'm your host, Shelby, and this is The Breaking Point. Today's story has more twists and turns than a roller coaster at Disney. Like a violent tornado, this femme fatale left a path of destruction wherever she went. We are talking about the infamous Susan Grun. Born in 1958 to a poor farming family living in Peru, Indiana, Susan, originally named Sue Ann Sanders, was desperate to get out. Being one of seven children in a poverty-stricken family with an abusive father, she realized her looks would be a one-way ticket out of town. No surprise, Susan took the first opportunity provided and at only 17 had ran off to start a new life with her rock star husband, Ronnie. Her first marriage was not all she expected and the low-budget local rock star of a husband was not raking in the dough like she hoped. Though for any 17-year-old, the lifestyle was still enough to keep her attention, at least momentarily. The bar scene in her husband's busy schedule allowed Susan to remain on the prowl for her next suitor. Her affairs were well-known and finally ended her first marriage when one affair, (laughs) oopsie, had resulted in an unplanned pregnancy. Her and her rocker husband divorced and she quickly remarried the baby daddy-to-be, Gary. Now, Gary had apparently been a convenient choice since they both lived in the same apartment complex. Susan continued seeing any man who gave her attention, frequently leaving her firstborn son, Jacob, with family members to party. Honestly, this may have been the only decent thing that she did in her life because I've certainly known and heard of parents who would bring their children along to these wild ragers and parties and live it up like it's 1999. (laughs) Though given the time frame, it would have been more like partying like it's 1979, but I digress. Uh, Anyways, her affairs, paired with the physical assaults that she inflicted on this man, led to her second marriage dissolving. Susan, with a toddler of her own to care for and no real ambitions or goals, sought another lover. Determined to get her hooks in deep, she found recent widower Tom through a factory that they both worked at. Tom was college-educated, ex-military, and was working under his father-in-law, who owned the company. Tom's ex-father-in-law was not thrilled about Susan. And quite frankly, I don't blame the guy. He had just buried his daughter six months earlier, and he knew the reputation of old one-night stand Sue Ann. Tom, however, seemed desperate to fill a personal void for a wife and a mother to his son, Tommy, who happened to be the same age as her son, Jacob. The two hit it off, and he quickly fell under her spell, marrying just weeks after meeting. Are we seeing a pattern yet? Talk about freaky fast. Jimmy Johns has nothing on Susan. And this bitch, having zero motherly instincts, was now left to raise another child, Tommy. And heads up, the next few moments will cover acts of child abuse and maybe triggering. So feel free to skip ahead. 
All right, I'm going to continue. With the ink barely dry on the marriage license, three-year-old Tommy had been hospitalized with a fractured skull. When doctors questioned the child, he said, Mommy hit me, referring to then-stepmother Susan. She insisted the boy was storytelling, and it was an accident, claiming how clumsy Tommy was. For reasons I can't understand, they sent the poor boy back home and into her care once released. Now, I will say, this is the 80s, and CPS was in its early infancy, and I believe they probably just gave her the benefit of the doubt, but this literally makes my blood boil because it seemed to just give her the green light to keep on keeping on. And having gotten off clean, she continued her beatings until one day she had gone too far, nearly killing him. Four months after the initial hospitalization, Tommy was back, and this time in a coma, clinging to life. He suffered horrific trauma to nearly all of his body, but most concerning were the brain bleeds and swelling. The suspicion immediately fell on the 911 caller, Susan. She claimed Tommy had been a clumsy boy and had many accidents that week. She stated he had fallen out of a shopping cart, tripped over their dog, and hit his head on the concrete all within the same week. Because, you know, he's just a clumsy boy. They weren't buying her story. All testing and x-rays only reaffirmed that these injuries were the result of reoccurring beatings. Try as she may, she also couldn't explain the cigarette burns to Tommy's little body. This bitch was evil. The state stepped in and removed the children from the home, placing Tommy with his grandfather and Jacob with his biological father, Gary. The next part will have you screaming, what the fuck? She got a five-year suspended sentence. That means no jail time, just probation for leaving her stepson in a severely handicapped state for the rest of his life. And I'm sure you're asking, what happened with Tom then? Surely he left. (laughs) You would be wrong because he stayed with her, though his dedication to her would never be enough. He certainly tried to tame her, but at 25, she left him and was officially back on the dating scene after now three failed marriages. This is where we meet her final victim, James, or Jim, Grund. They had mutual friends who had set the two up on a blind date as a joke, never thinking Jim would be interested. See, Jim was a prominent prosecutor turned defense attorney and at the height of his career. Susan was a young, single mother with no career or pot to piss in. The two couldn't be more opposite. In one more thing, could Jim overlook her current pregnancy with ex-husband Tom? That's right, newly divorced and pregnant. Jim apparently didn't mind and was enamored with the attractive young woman. She was a 25-year-old charming blonde bombshell, and he was a single father in his 40s. She gave birth to her daughter, Tanel, with Jim by her side, and just days later, the two were hitched. Susan had been sure to tell her well-to-do attorney of a husband about her previous convictions and told him how the state got it all wrong. She sought his help to getting her son Jacob back, and Jim did just that for her. The odd pair seemed happy, or at least they were for a few short years, until Jim had finally grown tired of his wife's spending habits. Sure, he knew of the affairs. It was the talk of the town— 
But what really bothered him is that he felt like his wife didn't really care about him, only his money. Not to mention the whispers that Susan had been trying to seduce Jim's older son. Jim knew that having a blended family can be difficult, and with Jim's son David being 18 and he being the only father figure to Susan's two children, they tried couples therapy. He tried working through their differences and hoped the rumors were just that, rumors. Therapy didn't seem to be the cure-all, and in the summer of 1992, Jim had sought the advice of fellow attorney regarding his desires for a divorce. Now, I understand why Jim held off, but I cannot stress this enough. Do not wait. But he did. He held off on finalizing anything until the family returned from an Alaskan cruise and what would be their last trip together. Susan wasn't blind to her husband's lack of affection, though. She knew that she had to act fast to keep her lavish lifestyle from slipping through her hands. Because her husband was a prominent attorney, she feared losing custody of the children and losing Jim's financial support. What Jim didn't know is that weeks prior, Susan had already put a plan into motion that would end in his untimely death. One afternoon, Susan paid an unexpected visit to the home of stepson, David. The two made small talk, speaking about how their day had been, and Susan seemed particularly interested in David's new puppy, asking where they kept the dog while they would be away. Conversations shifted to a talk about a gun that David recently purchased. It was a 9mm semi-automatic. He allowed his stepmother to see where he kept it and even let her handle the gun. Before leaving, she had noticed a storm door had been broken, secured only by a shoestring. It was the perfect opportunity. See, it was the 4th of July, and she had already knew the family would be out of the home and occupied for the evening. Jim, David, Susan, Tanel, and Jacob all attended a family barbecue that afternoon. Both Jim and Susan, along with Jacob and Tanel, stayed until about 6 p.m., leaving David behind. Shortly before dark, Susan had checked back in with the family who were still remaining at the barbecue to see if David had planned on attending the fireworks display. They advised her that David wasn't feeling well and he would be staying there for a while before heading home. Susan, being the devoted mother she was, pressed forward, not only with her own children, but with a few neighborhood boys as well. When she arrived at the location where the display would be held, she conveniently couldn't find parking. She dropped the boys off and told them she would meet them back at the ice cream shop across the street once the fireworks had ended. The boys did as they were told, and at the end of the show, went to the shop across the street. Though funnily enough, Susan wasn't there. They had to wait a few moments before she finally pulled up and they all headed home, thinking nothing of it. It was around the same time that David and his girlfriend had arrived back at their place and immediately phoned police, noticing that their home had been burglarized. Strangely, there was cash and jewelry and things of value in plain sight, but one thing unaccounted for was David's gun. Officers took the report and went on their way. Skip forward to August 3rd, 1992. The family had already arrived home from that Alaskan cruise we spoke about earlier. Jim had let Susan know his mind hadn't changed and therapy wasn't working. Did anyone really expect it to, though? 
anyways. With tensions obviously running high, Susan arranged for her children to stay at various homes that night. Just before midnight, Susan had made the frantic 911 call saying that her husband Jim had been shot. Jim's body was laying on a couch in their bedroom with blood pouring from his eyes and mouth. By the time the emergency responders had arrived, he was already cold. The scene otherwise looked fairly normal. It didn't appear that there was any sign of a struggle or forced entry. There were no broken or overturned furniture, just a suitcase with women's clothing thrown about. Now, if you're thinking what I'm thinking, he probably got home from that cruise and had all he could take of her being cooped up on that ship, started packing her things. She came back after dropping the kids off to find this, and the rest is history. That's just my theory. Detectives immediately sensed that this was likely a staged murder and not a burglary gone wrong, as nothing was really missing, and whoever had shot Jim was in such a rush to get out that they forgot to pick up after themselves, leaving behind one spent casing near Jim's body. Without enough evidence to book her that night, Susan was free to go. This being a tight-knit community, and Jim being such a prominent member of it, They immediately recalled that his son David had reported a missing 9mm pistol just weeks before. That was the same kind of casing that now lay next to Jim's lifeless body. In the weeks following the murder, the family struggled to find some sense of normalcy, deciding that it was best that they move. Susan, Jacob, Tanel, and Susan's mother left Peru and went to Vincent's, Indiana. On September 3rd, 1992, a former neighbor had phoned Susan and informed her that police were searching her home in Peru. So that night, she met with Sister Darlene Warden at a McDonald's near Indianapolis. Darlene, under the impression she was only helping her sister to retrieve some items from the home, had no way of knowing just what she was stepping into. It was during that drive that Susan had confessed to killing her husband. According to her, this is at Jim's prompting. The story she told was that this was actually intended to be a double suicide, but she hadn't been able to kill herself. She claims Jim had asked her that she shoot him so that his will would remain effective. Clearly none of that story made sense, but Darlene rolled with it. She knew her sister was a narcissistic liar, but even she never saw this coming. As soon as they arrived to the home, Susan had told her sister that it was still there, referring to the gun being in the laundry room. No worries, Susan had a plan. She had two teddy bears in the home, one of which she ripped open the back and stuffed the pistol inside, leaving with both of them in totally unnoticed. I don't know about you, but at this time, I would be like, yeah, um, I'm out. Peace. But <laughs> anyways, this bitch having no regard for who she implicates, then calls up Darlene's husband and asks he bring her a bag of cement. Spoiler alert, he does. Susan then put the gun in a steel kettle and encased it with cement, leaving it stashed in her mother's attic and praying that it never be found. Shortly after this is when Darlene's conscience must have been eating away at her. She was like, "Mm, no ma'am, I am not going down with you. 
She feared her mother must have been aware by now, too, and didn't want her to get sucked in any deeper. Darlene had a little chit-chat with the cops and told them everything she knew. Susan was immediately arrested. And it wasn't long after that that Susan's own mother handed over the suspicious kettle found in her attic. The defense now had their smoking gun. At trial, Susan was fast to say any testimony that differed from hers were all just lies. After all, her sister had always been jealous of her beauty, and her stepson David wanted to sleep with her. And in fact, her defense was that her son wanted his stepmommy so bad that he killed his own father. No surprise, he went full Bill Clinton and denied ever having any sexual relations with that woman. (laughs) Enough doubt had been cast that her trial ended with the jury unable to reach a decision. Her attorneys in the second trial had decided that it wasn't wise to continue with a story that David was the alleged murderer. They didn't think that it put her in a very good light. The prosecution, however, they focused on the holes in her timeline, her ever-changing accounts of what happened, the motive, and her history for violence. See, and this is where little Tommy gets his revenge. The evidence this time was undeniable, and in March of 1994, she was convicted of murder and sentenced to 60 years in prison. Susan went on to file many appeals following the conviction, all of which were denied. She had claimed ineffective counsel, stating that her attorney had some hearing impairments, and he didn't properly object to certain lines of questioning. Um, she also went on to reference that, you know, they allowed hearsay into the trial, meaning that there weren't any factual evidence that backed up any of the statements. So therefore, they shouldn't have been allowed to convict her. Susan was clearly grasping at straws and apparently was not a fan of her jail cell. Of course, it was nothing like her lavish lifestyle that she had gotten used to. And one of her appeals was to the health board. She was seeking the approval for the removal of her ruptured breast implants and to allow for new ones. She stated that her mental health had taken a hit, with her body now distorted and disfigured. This was so much more than a cosmetic procedure. This was her mental well-being. They had little sympathy and agreed that the removal of the ruptured implant was medically necessary, but she would not be getting a new rack. Sadly, she didn't end up serving a full 60 years and rot in her cell like we all hoped the child-abusing murderer would. She got out on May 25th of 2020 after getting time cuts for good behavior. So fellas, beware. There's a cougar on the prowl. And that, my friends, is the story of Susan Grun. I wanted to start with this one because I found it fascinating that it's not your typical story. We're so used to headlines where, you know, the husband or the boyfriend Um, really just any male perpetrator is the one that usually is, is known for committing these crimes. But interestingly enough, the CDC says that one in three women experience domestic violence, and it's not a huge gap for men. According to recent statistics, one in four men have experienced some form of physical violence by an intimate partner. 
I don't know about you, but I find that interesting because it is something that is so widely unreported. I think that generally speaking, you know, men are known to be, you know, physically more capable of defending themselves. Therefore, the notion is surely they can't be victims themselves. However, in this case, we know that Susan had assaulted her second husband, Gary. In fact, she had stabbed him in the chest and in the leg with a pair of scissors once before. Now, I can't help but wonder if that would have been reported, would Jim still be alive? Even if it had been reported, would they have even taken that seriously? I don't know. I wish there were so many things that happened differently in that story, but then we wouldn't be talking about it, would we? Um, We also like to ask the question, what was the breaking point for some of these people? What brought them to do the things that they did? What compelled them? And for Susan, I really think she was just a conniving, opportunistic, narcissistic, evil woman. From a very young age, we see that she's constantly using those around her, lying, kind of trying to change her identity, you know, thinking that uh, her origin story is just below her. She can't be Sue Ann. She has to be Susan. Um, And very quickly, she moves to kind of these escalated moments of inflicting pain on people. So I think in her case, I don't feel there was a breaking point. I think, unfortunately, Susan was born evil. Thanks for tuning in. And if you liked this podcast, share it with your friends, give it a like, and be sure to tune in next time.